episode 39, Marco Altini. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. Good day, folks. On today's episode, I speak with Marco Altini from HRV for Training. I had a blast talking to Marco because he is always on the edge um, of all things experimentation, especially when it comes to HRV. Um, so I was really uh, happy to have him on and dig into a lot of the questions I had for him um, surrounding various uses of HRV. What does the literature say? What are we seeing uh, in application for HRV showing value? We discussed a ton of different topics. Now, you know, these topics a lot of the times blended into overall understanding training stress, um, evaluation of global stress. So I thought it was a really insightful conversation um, surrounding a bunch of topics that are related to stress and HRV. Um, if you haven't listened to the HRV episode that we did before this, I think that might be useful to give a background and understanding of what HRV is, um, how it's it's generally been used in medicine. Um, also, you know, what are some of the uses in, in sport that we can see? Um, but yeah, we touched on a ton uh, on this episode and, and it's really great to hear Marco chat on this and just such a humble uh, guy to, to talk to his, his knowledge. Uh, is quite extensive. So if you want to get in uh, contact uh, following s uh, social media for Marco there, I'll leave that in the show notes. Uh, I'll leave his Twitter handle. He has an amazing Twitter uh, and also his, his blog and his website for his HRV for training uh, tools and apps, which are a great resource. I just started using them over the last few months, switched over from other HRV platforms and uh, have been enjoying them quite a bit so far. So um, other than that, hope you guys enjoy the episode and we'll catch you later. I'm happy to have you on today. One thing I'll let you know on is I I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter. Like I just, I have an account. I only follow a few people, but I literally check your account. You're probably <laughs> the only person that I go on Twitter to check your account specifically to see what you've put up recently, whether it's on your blogs, on Medium, or some of these stuff that you're experimenting with. So yeah, it's it's great to have you on because I'm interested to dig into some of the topics today surrounding HRV and and whatnot. But yeah, so let's let's start off with why is this useful? Like because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what HRV is, and people listening, I've already given an introduction of what it is. So Let's just try to explain, like, why is this thing useful? What are we trying to measure? Are we trying to use it for, like, acute training decisions? Are we trying to use it for understanding response, rolling averages? What, what is, where do you see this as? Where do you see the value? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So HRV is basically non-invasive method to capture your stress response. And that's why we consider it useful because we can try to understand how we are responding to many different stressors, right? HRV is not specific of something. It's not something that should be used just for training. It's not something that tracks anything specifically, but it is very sensitive to all sorts of stressors. 
And as such, it can help because we can get an understanding of how we respond to the different stressors we face. Some can be intentional, like training and the workouts we try to do to trigger certain adaptations. Others could be unplanned. We might be getting sick or we might be facing some stressors at work or in the family that we didn't see coming or something like that, that is impacting our physiology. And as we know, our ability to handle stress is limited, right? We cannot take unlimited stress. There is a point in which this might lead to negative chronic responses in terms of health and performance and everything that we can do will be limited. So we don't want to get in that state, but by checking how we respond on a day-to-day basis to the different stressors we face, we can try to keep things a bit more in balance and then try to avoid those negative chronic responses in the long run. So this is a bit how I see it in terms of the usefulness of this marker, right? We don't have many other ways to check objectively how we respond to stress. This is a simple tool that we can use and we don't need to to do anything too, too complex at this stage to measure it. And then once we know how that process of measuring it and interpreting the data works, then we can use this data to try to, again, keep things in balance, see how we respond to stressors, make some small changes here and there, and hopefully avoid negative adaptations, negative chronic responses, and and benefit in the long term, both in health and performance. Mm. I like that. And I think the hard part around this is, for a lot of people, it's going to take a change in perception around their training to understand the usefulness. Because When you're talking about measuring global stress load, for a lot of people, that's not a calculation that they're making, especially type A individuals. A lot of type A individuals are very poor at understanding the amount of stress load that they're under. I've noticed that. And and a lot of people don't make the connections of adaptation and global stress load. Like I've heard Cal Dietz speak on this many times. They see the highest injury rates not around these massive loads and and training volume being ramped up or or anything connected to training or correlated to training. It's always around the most stressful times of the year surrounding exams or anything where it's going on, where, where students have to take on a large global stressor, right? Whether that's poor sleep during a certain period of time, but yeah. And, 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 and when people start to look at training as a, a piece of a global stressor, it makes more sense in understanding how you're going to adapt to things and and the responses that you might be seeing. One thing I would like to hear your perspective on is when we're looking at HRV, a lot of people use it acutely. A lot of people use it as the stop, the red light, the green light, the yellow light. And there has been some research to support decision-making under specific contexts surrounding using it for high intensity to see how basically ready that athlete is to absorb global stress. Um, But maybe let's talk about the analysis, like rolling averages and understanding the response to various training blocks, because I don't think a lot of coaches see the, the value in that as well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it is always, I would say, only natural to focus a lot on on the daily scores because that's when you measure the numbers you get in, in any sort of aspect that we track. We might stress too much the acute with respect to the longer term trend. 
this happens also with HRV, right? We look at our data today and then maybe it's a bit suppressed below what we could call our normal range. So it's a meaningful suppression. What shall we do, right? Shall we scale down training intensity or not? At the beginning, even the research on what is called HRV-guided training, so simply using HRV to make adjustments for your training, was also using this approach. So acutely, based on where you were standing, you would make a change. Recently, the approach has shifted a bit towards looking at trends and what we could call, again, the rolling average or the baseline. That simply means a weekly average of your data, so typically seven days. And where that stands with respect to normal range, as opposed to just the daily score. This, of course, gives you a less acute picture, right? So to get a suppression, you would need a couple of bad days, not just a bad day, because otherwise your baseline will not lower that much. So when the baseline reduces, you simply have a stronger signal that there is much stress that has not been into it properly by the body because there is a negative response that is lasting a couple of days. Otherwise, you would not see a suppression in your trend. So it is a simple way to capture, I would say, a stronger signal as opposed to a simple suppression that you have on one day. At the same time, I think we need to understand the difference between a study and a protocol that is always the same and where things are being tested and real life where things are a bit different. For example, if we have a suppression today because we are getting sick, then it's also not particularly smart to wait three or four days until you, your baseline is also suppressed, right? In that case, we have a strong acute signal that something is off. So we need, I think, to balance these two aspects in practice. And one way to do that is very simple. You look at the objective data, and also you look at how you're feeling, right? The data should not replace your feeling. It's something that should aid maybe the process also of better assessing subjectively how you're feeling and combining this information. Sometimes it's easier to understand if, okay, it's just a pressure today, I feel great, there is no problem, I can ignore it. And then tomorrow I expect to bounce back and be excited again in, within my normal range and that is perfectly fine. If that does not happen and you have a suppression again, then we have a stronger structure in there and then maybe it's time to make a change. So I think we always need to try to balance these two aspects. The longer term trends are very important and go also in a direction that is sometimes the opposite of the acute stressors. And that's, I think, quite typical with training, right? We, When we train, we basically we break down the body and we create a lot of damage and a lot of stress. But then we do that repeatedly over time. We deal with that better. And then in the long run, we are fitter, we are faster, we are in a better place. Acutely, that means that HRV, we expect a suppression right after training. But then if we are in a training block with high volume or high intensity and we are doing a training camp or something like that, and we are responding well to that. We do not expect HRV to be suppressed. On the contrary, we expect the data to be stable or even increasing because that is a positive response to the stimulus that we are providing. So it's always important to understand the difference between what happens in the very short term and what is the response in the longer term. And we need to try to, to break down, I think, the response that way if we want to benefit from using the data beyond the very simple acute response that you have in the first 24 hours, more or less. I like that a lot because one thing I've noticed too, coming back to personality characteristics is 
it can be hard to really get a clear, honest understanding of what the athlete is perceiving in terms of stress, right? Especially there's so many human factors. One thing when I really got into avalanche work was understanding the amount of human factors that are in play with people making decisions, right? How much do they want this task? How much do they want the objective of getting through this route or skiing this line or climbing this line? <clears throat> How many people are they surrounded by? And what are their kind of places in that social hierarchy? Is, is someone else leading and pulling the other person along? And this can really cloudy the waters and what you're hearing from the athlete and understanding. And, and one one criticism I've heard on HRV is, well, it doesn't really provide us anything to make decisions off of. Well, my counter to that a lot of the times is, would you not test a athlete's VO2 max because it's an after the fact like uh, metric, right? We're, we're not testing VO2 max acutely. We're seeing these changes from month to month and training blocks to try and understand how did the athlete respond to this, right? What were the changes in the metrics we've seen? Where did their VT1 shift? Where did their VT2 shift or lactate curve? How did that shift? We use those metrics and those metrics are trying to see what was the response to the intervention that we played. And I think HRV, for me, the way that I've seen it, and I'm, I'm definitely starting to become more bullish on this, is what was the response from the athlete over this last block? Or what was the response? What are you seeing in your daily numbers? What is the trend shifting towards because one thing I've known too is, is depending on the athlete, depending on the sport, depending on the training volume and intensity, those factors are all going to create kind of different curves and different rolling averages and, and different shifts in the HRV and in physiological metrics. So to me, I see there's a huge value here in understanding how does this, how does this block shift compared to this maybe high volume block versus the high intensity block. And that's some of the stuff I've, I've come across from your work is trying to take this bigger picture view and seeing what what are we looking at here yeah what yeah also if i can just add something yeah. i think it's it's important to understand that really what we look at is a response right i think that's why it's useful because yeah. the stimulus is something that we try to track in many different ways the training load or st stress whatever you want to call it that you that you provide and the whole point is that when you give that stimulus you don't know how the person is going to respond, respond. Like different people will respond differently, but even the same person in a different phase, as you were saying before, with the students, athletes, maybe it's a phase in which they have exams and then they're getting injured more frequently because they are there's a lot more stress in their lives, even if training is similarly or less. So by looking at the response, we can get insights into these processes that otherwise are, are very difficult to gather. Yeah, and... and... It's when you really think about it, I, I'm actually playing with, we'll get to this after, but I'm playing with intra work, workout HRV and post-workout HRV right now. But to me, that is an irrelevant factor of the, I want to see response. I want to see global stressors. I don't want to see acute stressors because for example, I think most people can understand this concept of if someone has a chronic high stress load they have a chronically high elevated cortisol throughout the day, norepinephrine, all these, all the, the endocrine system is going to be representing in a certain way. And when the, when, when the endocrine system is, is presenting in that way, 
adaptations are going to be limited. It's the same reason why when people are in extremely stressed and catabolic state, it's going to be much harder to put on muscle mass. Your body's resources to allocate to recover and, and essentially create an environment that is going to build itself is going to be limited, if that's a, this, the simplest way I could put it. And I think most people know this is when people go through serious periods of stress, a lot of people tend to lose weight or, or, or people can can combat that by overeating and, and, and comfort eating and things like this. But we know that we know that that the internal environment is very important for our response to training intervention. So if I'm measuring something acutely, like the workout stress, that doesn't tell me how well I'm going to adapt to something. And I'm not saying HRV is specifically going to tell me that, but it's going to give me a better view of understanding the internal state than just this acute stressor. Right. Because yep. Yep. I think I we agree. all know this. Yeah. Yeah. That comes also down to um, when we measure, right. It's still HRV, but if you measure exactly during the stressor, then sure it's going to be suppressed, but that might not be the most interesting piece of information because maybe you want to measure after a couple of hours and see if we bounce back to the previous values and we have assimilated the stressor well or not. Yeah. And I think, I think the misunderstanding surrounding this is a lack of understanding of where HRV came from in the first place, because if we look how it was used in medicine and how it was used in Russia, this was the whole concept behind it. They want to see, they wanted to see global load and see how well the body is in a state of basically disease, right. And in medicine, right. How far down the rabbit hole they were into that state versus, and the same thing with astronauts and all these different things. They wanted to see how well their, their body's ability was to absorb global stress load and, and to, to work off different therapies or, or, or different modalities. So I think I'm, I'm hoping that people start to see the other view. And I, I don't think some of these companies have done a good job and especially with some of these metrics that they put out in terms of like, oh, honing in on these kind of ethereal metrics that you don't really understand where they're coming from. And they're telling the athlete certain things about their ability to do this or do that, or, oh, you had this, this low stress score means that it was this stressor that caused this. I think a lot of that stuff really does a disservice for everyday users, athletes, and understanding what is the value in this, because inherently they're going to hone in on those specific little variations day to day because they're being pumped out marketed wise and, and trying to, it's, it's, yeah, I just see it as non-optimal. But I'm hoping because with a lot of the stuff that I've seen you put out here on your Twitter and your, and your medium, I think people are starting to come back around and understand, okay, there's a bigger picture here. So actually moving into that is let's talk about this intro workout thing, because I know Bruce Rogers has, has come out and, and done a good job at, at putting forth the DFA alpha 1.75 and, and I I don't know how you feel on this, but I, I feel like 0.75 is similar to 0.75 of critical power e equaling zone, you know, the demarcation between moderate and heavy. I think that it's, yes, on average, we're seeing that it might lie somewhere, but do you think it, there might be some more nuance to that with yeah. regards yeah, to- Yeah, I personally yeah. agree with you. I think, so there has been plenty of research on HRV during exercise in the past decades, I would say. The limitation has always been that, well, the reasoning behind that first is that we are trying to look at parasympathetic activity again, so the activity of the abdominal nervous system at rest, parasympathetic activity is predominant, so that's why it's useful to measure 
HRV during exercise, we shift right towards sympathetic activity. And there, we don't really capture much with the typical HRV metrics, which means that HRV is just very suppressed and there is very little difference between different intensities to the point that just looking at heart rate typically is more useful. Mm-hmm. Now, with DFA, is a bit different. There is a larger range of values that you cover when you go through different intensities to the point that this becomes more useful because you can finally also look at HRV in the context of exercise and not only heart rate. So according to some of the recent research, looking at HRV this way might be a bit more sensitive than heart rate to different intensities or to fatigue. So that's Again, the typical advantage of using HRV with respect to heart rate, even at rest, is just that it is more sensitive to stressors and the information that we want to look at. So that's why we go through the trouble of looking at that instead of just resting heart rate. And with DFA, there is a theoretical framework, let's say, in which from which this 0.75 comes from, right? It's, it's not that data was collected to determine that this is the point in which this happens. It's that this is the point in between 0.5 and 1, which is the theoretical extremes of these autocorrelation functions. And then looking at that, we would say, okay, at 0.75, we have this middle point in which maybe we go through a different metabolic pathway or we go through what normally we would call, we go from the, let's say, low intensity to moderate or high intensity, the first lactate threshold or ventilatory threshold and all of that. However, I think then also looking at the data that has been published recently, you can see that on average, yes, it is close, but at the individual level, there can be large differences. So I don't think there is any physiological parameter where we can just take an absolute number and that will work for everyone. It's just not how physiology works. And that's also why we use HRV always with respect to our own historical data. We do not say, okay, this is your HRV. And like, if you measure your HRV, we cannot say anything about you, right? It is just that data point. But then if you measure it for two months, then we can say something about how stress is training how you are responding to the different stressors you're facing. And I think this is similar. So if I measure my DFA during exercise, for me, it's, for example, it's much lower than, than what is, it's reported in this paper, right? So if I run even very easy, it's going to be 0.5 maybe. And then if I increase the intensity, of course, it's going to lower. So I see the same trends over time, and maybe that is also associated to fatigue and other parameters that can be useful to track. But the absolute values, I would always be very careful with those because it might just not be applicable for our specific case. So I think we need maybe to move to move on in, in this context, uh, similar to what we did with lactate ages ago, right? So before you would just have these absolute values, you would say, okay, you pass two millimoles or four millimoles. And now I think nobody does that. You look at the curve and then you look at the first increment and that could be at very different levels for different people. And I think maybe we will get to something similar also with this. It's an an interesting aspect to analyze, but I would not really focus on the absolute numbers there. I really like that. That that comparison to lactate, I think, was genius because this is something that I constantly run my head into the wall trying to explain. If we're going to go through the laborious process of measuring things and analyzing things and scrubbing the artifacts and getting the windows right and understanding all these different things and and recording it and analyzing it. If it's inherently just 
as useful as saying 0.75 of critical power or whatever it is that that's just not a worthwhile effort so i think we ex the same with the lactate curve i inherently think lactate is very useful but understanding what we're trying to measure and what we're trying to capture is important and i think being very accurate in what we're trying to capture and doing that to the best of our ability makes those modalities worthwhile if you're just talking about two millimolar and four millimolar those things start to become much less useful now for me yep. But yeah, I, I do think, and I'm hoping people, because people, I see a lot of people talking about 0.75 and, and even 0.45. And I'm like, I, 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 one thing I really don't like is people that are not hitting that training threshold of where they need to be, to be focusing on things like that in the first place, and then running themselves through the process of trying to understand these things and measure them. It's like, I I just want folks to see the bigger picture with that. So it, it's not hindering their process because yeah. these things take time, how, how, uh, how finicky they can be to capture some of these metrics. So another thing moving into intra workout is I've heard, I heard you mention something that you'd like to do is measure intra workout HRV, like pre intra workout HRV and post HRV or post workout HRV. And that's something I recently started doing. And what really interested me was some of the metrics I was getting back diverge a lot from what my my thinking would be. And I read that paper that you you attached with Siler and a few other individuals. I can't remember exactly, but I was very interested to see the differences in response for interval work versus heavy intensity work for long periods of time. Some people would call this threshold and also different varying degrees of moderate intensity, like low intensity work whether that's 30 minutes or, or more, even on the lower end. And I think there might be something there in terms of understanding an individual's kind of acute response to varying intensities. And this is something I've always noticed with different athletes, whether the phenotype of muscle fiber type or just the phenotype of sport that that individual is in. I think that some of these kind of traditional prescribed workouts are going to create completely different stressors. If I have a CrossFitter go out and, and, and work at this, we'll call it this low intensity pace that's based off of whatever heart rate zones that are made up off of whether it's Maffetone or, or these things, I'm going to get compl a completely different response than if I have someone that's an actual endurance athlete running at that intensity for that period of time. And I, I think it, there is something there to understand acute response from athlete to athlete, I think, which will be useful because this doesn't need a, a metabolic cart. This doesn't need lactate strips. This doesn't need all the bells and whistles that come into the lab, but just having an athlete go out and measure this while they're on the bike, um, I think can give a good look of what is the kind of acute stress being placed on, on this athlete. And I've noticed some really cool stuff. I mean, I'm really, really looking forward to continue this data collection and, and just keep playing around with it and see how it changes over fitness levels and see how it correlates to different changes in threshold markers. But yeah, do you think there could be something there possibly? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is an interesting analysis to run first because you isolate training in this case if mm -hmm. we are interested in looking at how we are training and if we are applying the right stressors let's say mm -hmm. especially for low intensity maybe when we measure hrv in the night or in the morning we have recovered still from the stimulus but still the stimulus might have been not what we targeted 
and by looking at HRV right before and right after training. It is, according to the research that you were also mentioning, it is possible to see if you were basically going a little too hard or if you were actually targeting that low intensity work, because in that case, everything should renormalize extremely quickly. I think within, for sure, within half an hour, everything should be like before, probably even a bit quicker. While if the intensity is a bit too high, then there will be a suppression that is going to last a lot longer. If the athlete is less fit, it will last even longer. And I think here it gets really interesting also with environmental stressors, right? So when it gets hot, I've seen this a lot in my data, even going for something really easy would leave me with suppression that would last for a lot longer. And these kind of things allow you also to capture a bit how you deal with these different stressors. And again, some people might still have, let's say, no problems or a very small impact of these different stressors and others might have a very large impact and maybe then need to make some further adjustments. So by looking at this, I think we can gain some insight also on the duration, right? If we have a low intensity, but then how long is too long, for example, for a person, like how long would impact your autonomic nervous system in a way that basically it's impaired for hours afterwards and not just for, for a few minutes or half an hour or something like that. So that's an interesting analysis. It is easy, meaning that you don't need to spend much money. At the same time, you do need a little patience, I would say, because (laughs) it it takes some time to do the measurements before and after. And then there are some requirements that can be a bit annoying at times, right? Maybe you cannot really drink a lot of water before measuring or during, because that's going to impact the measurement. And then as as always with HIV, you should be careful not to do things like just swallowing or yawning or talking because all of that creates artifacts in in your heart activity. So there's a few things to to pay attention to, but I think it can can lead to useful insights at the individual level. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you on that as, as it is, especially setting just the logistics of it, setting your timer on the wash to measure at this time. Right now, I'm only measuring pre-intra, post five minutes and post 30 minutes. And I I do see with anything under VT1 or around VT1 or LTP1, my recovery is is fairly close back to normal within 30 minutes. Whereas those, especially intervals or, or heavy intensities, those respond differently, but they're definitely nowhere near being recovered by 30 minutes. It's I don't really measure out to 60 minutes anymore, but it's getting closer to 60, 90 minutes before they're starting to come back up. Yeah. But yeah, it is one of those things where it's unfortunate because I think there's some value there, but I, it's, I could not see this be useful in any ways for sending this out to my athlete. Hey, can you find a quiet place, sit down after five minutes and measure and then 30 minutes and measure. And it's like, I think there's value there and understanding the response, but I just wish it would, there was, there was more applicability um, at the moment, but, who knows maybe in the future one one thing i really did want to dig into you or sorry dig in with you is the difference between night measures and morning measures because this is something that i've seen with the advent of these 24-hour monitoring tools whether that's the aura ring or whether that's whoop and people somehow equating these night measures that are based off of different algorithms and different points in the sleep versus the morning measure what are the 
things to take in consideration when you're using those as your HRV metrics? Why might they not be similar in some ways? Yeah. So let's say, let's start with the similarities first. There's, I would say these are the only two ways in which it makes sense to measure HRV in the context of what we are discussing here, typically, which is we want to assess your response, your baseline physiological stress level. We are not talking anymore about measuring during exercise, measuring before and after exercise, because those are tightly coupled to a specific stressor. We want to measure overall stress, and we need to do that at rest, not only at rest, but also far from all other stressors. That is why measuring in the evening, for example, when you are resting before sleeping is also not a good idea, because everything that happened before will be still impacting you. And these are transitory stressors, so we are not particularly interested in these transitory stressors. We really want to understand this baseline level in your physiology, and that should be done either first thing in the morning, which has been done traditionally in research also because maybe it was sometimes the only way when you had to get people in the lab and measure as opposed to get them overnight because we didn't have wearables or other sensors to just carry at home and things that we can do today. Mm-hmm. And then again, if it's not first thing in the morning, then it could be the night because we are resting and, and sleeping. There are a few studies that recently looked at this data and showed that if we look at the baselines, so the moving averages over periods of times, the two are highly correlated. So the process that we capture in the longer run, it is the same. Where things change quite a bit is on a day-to-day basis, acutely. And some of the reasons there are easy to understand. For example, when we measure in the night, we measure earlier with respect to the morning. It's just another time point. So if we have someone that is playing in the evening or training in the evening, in the, evening the stressor is late and their night data will be very close to that stressor. So the data might reflect the stressor more than the response, Mm -hmm. similarly to measuring right after exercise. When we do that, we don't really see the response that we see in the morning because we have waited enough for the body to basically assimilate the stressor. And that is important because then there is also the restorative effect of sleep that is happening at the same time. So we are not measuring what happens after that, but we always measure during. So it is a bit different because it's always more tightly coupled to the stressors that we are facing earlier in the night. Even if we have someone that maybe is drinking alcohol or is having a large late dinner, anything like that will have an impact that is more tightly coupled to the night date. And then it's debatable, I would say, if that's what we want to assess, because do we want to assess that? Because maybe we want to see that impact and then use that as a way to lead to behavioral change, for example, because you see, okay, hey, this happened because I did all of that. And maybe that's not good for me, so I should make some changes. So that can be useful that way. But then if we want to use it to guide training, then maybe if you measure in the morning after you have been sleeping, and after it's been some time since the previous stresses, then that might be more informative to understand what you can do that day. Because if these stresses had a negative impact on you, then it will be still there in the morning. Because if everything is gone, then it means that still you recover um, in time. So the different time point does make a difference. 
but I think we just need to understand a bit uh, and contextualize where the difference comes from and then to understand what measurement we should use depending on our goal. Do we want to guide training? We want maybe to lead to guide behavior and behavioral change because we have a bit of a different assessment. A lot will depend on practical reasons. Some athletes will just never remember to take their morning measurement. Yeah. So you get them a device that measures in the night. Other people just prefer to take a measurement in the morning as opposed to wear something all the time and then to spend also a lot of money. So practical reasons to pick one or the other, what works for your routine, and then understand what are the differences in terms of how the data is, is interpreted and so on. And just want to add us another thing on the, on the night data, because right now I feel like we are in a better place with respect to just a year ago or two years ago, where all these devices were providing very different data because they came up with different methods that maybe they generally thought was were better, but eventually were not. Now, all of them are very aligned on how they report the night data, which is always averaging either the full night or a lot of hours of the night. And that is the only way to do this, because if you just pick a segment of data, a few minutes, there's only one device left that does that, which is the Apple Watch, which cannot measure the whole time. That provides data that is not useful, because during the night, even if we are unconscious, the autonomic nervous system is not flat. Any point is not equivalent to any other point, because there is the circadian rhythm. So the, basically, HIV will just change throughout the night, increasing a bit, like resting heart rate reduces, because that is just the process that happens in the 24-hour cycle. But then there is also a lot of variability on a minute-by-minute -minute basis because of sleep stages. So HRV might be higher during REM sleep than in deep sleep. And then you can be in REM sleep in any time of the night, basically, or in deep sleep. There are more probability that REM sleep happens in the second part of the night. But still, it can happen pretty much any time, and it could be at different hours on different days. So if you measure at the same time in the night, or just for a few minutes in the night, you never know what you're going to get. And that means that you introduce a lot of noise in the data, which is why I would not use automatic measurements from the Apple Watch to draft your HRV. That is probably the only device not to use. It should be used only in the morning. But if you use an aura ring, if you use a whoop, if you use the latest Garmin sensors that also have uh, HRV on the watch, those now all use the same methods or very similar methods. Also had a different method before using just a few minutes of data that they changed last year. Mm. So now all of them report very similar data. And I think that's that's good because they're getting a lot more consistent. Then we already touched briefly on the things they built on top. And I think that is really something, don't worry about that, disregard all that information. But the physiology itself, it's important that it's captured consistently. And that is happening now, finally, with these devices. So you can capture it full night of data or first thing in the morning. And those are some of the differences. If we, if we look at, let's say, clean artifact-free data, then the other big question that we have is, how good is the data, which can be impacted by, let's say, some issues that optical measurements can have with movement. Now, when we are asleep, we don't move much, so that's great. We still can move a bit, so there can be more noise in the signal. At the same time, there can be artifacts that are not due to movement, but to actual cardiac arrhythmias, right? So if we have some ectopic bits or 
some premature ventricular contractions or any other form of maybe more serious arrhythmia, then the data might not be usable at all because HRV can only be captured correctly when there is no such arrhythmia or if there is maybe an ectopic beat over a minute or two of recording, then we can clean it up. If it, if it is more frequent, then it is a problem. So I have myself last year, I had some days with a lot of premature ventricular contractions that then some weeks actually then faded. And then now I have it once in a while, right? So when I measure in the night, my HRV will result extremely high because of these disruptions in the signal. Yeah. But then the devices do not report it because it's not a medical device. It's just that the algorithm has been fooled, let's say. While when I measure in the morning, Either I can feel it, so I know that maybe I just need to wait a minute and then measure again. <laughs> or if, let's say when, when you're conscious and aware, if the measurement is high quality or not, because you see it. When you sleep, you cannot know. So that is also always a challenge. You need to really trust the device. So if you have any form of arrhythmia or topic beats or anything like that, then sometimes I think it's just better if you measure in the morning. Yeah, I I like that because that was a very thorough explanation on all the different factors that play into the differences in these types of measurements and can also help aid individuals making decisions on is it worth it if I have a child or if I have a hectic morning schedule and just sitting for two minutes is going to stress me out. It's going to help people understand, hey, if I have the ability to do this, maybe I'll do it this way just because I know I might get cleaner data if I have any type of issue, whether whatever it is, like for, for yourself, like PVCs, right? Like, you know that, hey, this might be a good factor to push me to measure at this time. Moving off of that, what, because this is something that I've grown in my understanding is the use of PPG sensors versus strap H, H10 or whatever type of strap, the MoveSense, Santo Medical, I know that's out there now. Because my initial understanding was, Coming it, coming at it from the point of during exercise, HRV measurements, right for DFA alpha one and the the, the sampling rates, the the polar were just up to a thousand, I think, in ECG mode, um, thousand hertz versus something like a PVG sensor down to like thirty four or whatever the the sensor you're using, right? And I was trying to make sense of why would we want to use something like this to measure HRV. But then once I started to sit down and think about it, and this was because of what I read from you, is if we have artifact-free artifact data, it actually does fairly well. Like This is what these sensors were built for, was motionless readings, essentially. And when we have that kind of an environment where there's no movement, these things actually do perform fairly well. So yeah, maybe just- Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's say the context here matters a lot, meaning that when we get a chest strap, typically we can collect high quality HRV data mm -hmm. in a number of situations, including exercise. Mm -hmm. With PPG, the best we can do during exercise is heart rate. And that's because there is a lot of disruption in the signal with motion. The signal is very small with respect to the noise. It's simple as that. And that means that all the filtering and all the adjustments that are made to try to extract this signal make the bit-to-bit -bit differences that are what we care about here to measure HRV. Basically, we smooth them in a way that they're not representative of what was actually happening. It's just something that we can use to count the heartbeats. And that's why for heart rate, it's still okay. 
but we lose the actual timing information due to all this filtering that would allow us to capture HRV. So HRV during exercise, so no go. And I don't think this is going to change much. It's just too noisy to look this, to use this optical signal for something more than heart rate. When we do not move, it's different. So we can rely on a lower sampling frequency also because the signal is different. In the ECG, we have a very sharp peak. The R peak is called. So that needs to be captured typically at high frequency. I would say minimum maybe 150 hertz, ideally 250. Most sensors like the Polar use a lot higher frequencies like 1000, but with less is still, still good for the features we want to look at. Typically RMSSD is how we quantify HRV. The PPG signal is smoother, so you don't have such a sharp peak, which means you can also go lower frequencies. So there are studies that look at data collected down to 25 hertz, I think, and it shows that it is basically comparable. You can also upsample it later. For example, with HRV for training, we have a camera-based measurement where we upsample it at 180 hertz. And we've validated this against ECG, against the straps, as well as just a regular ECG device with gel electrodes. And that has shown also to be equivalent. So I think it can be done correctly at rest if a device is developed with that goal in mind, because other sensors simply have been developed for heart rate. So they will always smooth the signal in a way that is not useful for HRV, even if you do not move. It's not that you have to move for the device not to work. It will not work even at rest just because it has not been developed for that purpose. But all the wearables that provide you with HRV in the night, of course, they've been developed looking specifically at B2B data at rest, and they can do fairly accurate. I would say all of them at this point have been validated. It is different to measure HRV from ECG at the heart, or PRV should be called, so pulse rate variability, so what we call HRV when measured not with ECG, but with PPG, for example, at the finger, at the wrist or in other locations on the body. The signal obviously comes from blood flow, right? So the heart beats, blood is flowing on the body. And then you try to measure changes in blood volume at the periphery, for example, at the finger again, at the wrist. And you look at that signal, which basically as it's not exactly the same as the signal at the heart, but it is mostly driven by that. So that means that the change in B2B data is largely due to the change in B2B data measured at the heart. So that means that when we look at relative changes over time, so you measure today and you measure tomorrow, your absolute HRV measured with a chest strap or with a PPG device might be slightly different. So they might be slightly off, but then the relative change will be the same. And as we discussed at the beginning, the absolute values don't really matter. So if we measure for a couple of weeks, then we will see the exact same trend when measured with PPG and measure when, when measured with ECG. So that's what matters, even though typically even the absolute values should be really close in most people. But if there is some small difference, typically this is just in absolute units and it's not in relative terms, which means that these devices, if they were developed for the purpose of HIV analysis and if they were validated so to show that still they are pretty close to ECG over a very broad range of values, typically maybe 10 milliseconds to 250 milliseconds, that would cover pretty much everyone. Then it means that these devices can also be, be trusted for longitudinal measurements. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do like that because 
for many individuals putting on a heart rate or a strap in the morning it's just they're just not going to do that and here it's going to be low and knowing that they can just lay back down put their finger on their camera or or just roll over and and the user whoop strap through a third party it just sometimes those little things can go a long way for increasing adherence for sure what what about what about some of the things that you're interested to see searched or investigated in the literature what are some of the things that you're interested to see the direction for HRV? What are some of the things that you really want to take a look at? You want to see be yeah, brought forth to the table? So I would say we've done a lot of work and we've progressed a lot in terms of the measurements and the assessments, looking at things retrospectively and the technology has improved a lot. Mm-hmm. I think we still don't know much about how to influence it maybe. So what can you do? To lead to a certain change mm-hmm. and sure you can do a um, trial and error and see what works but it's always difficult to understand if it comes from a behavioral change yeah. or maybe from an environmental factor right there is also seasonality in these parameters so mm-hmm. my HIV is it better because it's summer or is it better because my training is doing well or maybe a combination of the two. I think there are multiple things. Or can we use practices like that are supposed to supposed to stimulate parasympathetic activity, like mm-hmm. certain forms of deep breathing, to influence it? And if we can influence it, what does it mean? Like, does it mean that we are actually recovering better and stress is lower or better balanced? Can we then take more load maybe in certain situations or deal better with the load that we are facing? I would say some of these aspects. So in terms of looking at looking ahead, trying to see what could be best for an individual based on lifestyle and training, and then what kind of practices also could impact it acutely, we know, but also more in the longer run. I think that's where it gets more difficult. But I think that now that there are so many different devices out there and people looking at this and doing studies, there's it's good times to learn more about many of these aspects. Yeah, I'm actually with you on that because that was something that I played around with years ago when I'd first gotten into the concept of, of trying to manipulate the autonomic nervous system whether it was in, in training in between rests or post-training. And I know there was a group of individuals looking at trying to understand down-regulation, post-training, what the effects were on recovery and what the effects were on performance after a set intervention. I don't know if they've continued with that that collection. But one thing that really started to click for me was I was going deep down the rabbit hole of getting the tens clipped to my ear through the auricular nerve and trying to like doing all these crazy things to stimulate the vagal response, increase vagal tone and understanding that even if I do manipulate this acutely, what kind of effect does that have in this kind of chronic state? Yeah. Maybe there's these other things inherently stuck in, in the, the process that are inhibiting me from lowering that kind of or increasing that that chronic state that that are playing a bigger factor that being said i do think there is something to increasing vagal tone as, as quickly as possible post training i think there's something to that i think with the recovery and i think we know this with different things of getting your your core temperature back to normal these things are definitely going to aid in 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 recovery so i think there is something to that and especially there is a lot of athletes 
that go from the gym just straight back into blasting whatever whatever work day or family and kids and i don't think i think if there's a break in there can help ease that because i just think there's the more and more you get into sport and i'm sure you've understood this is it's really just about managing this global stress and i i feel like a crazy person saying it over and over again like it's about (laughs) managing this global load like the training really has very little to do with it like you can go out and do whatever really but if you can manage that global load better i feel like i think I don't know. I think people are probably getting sick of this, but me saying yeah, this. Yeah, I cannot over. agree more. Of course, it's uh, yeah. you need to get your life straight first, and then you yes. can train. And it's funny because when we've looked at athletics, that has always been the. It's been always the opposite. The focus has always been on training. Yeah, we're seeing a more shifted perspective lately, as of yes, recovery is important, but I really. Th- I think there needs to be this bigger picture look at recovery and what does recovery actually mean? The psychological state of recovery. What does that mean? All those things are such huge factors. And I think when we're talking of the two or 3% gain in a year that we're looking for, especially if you're consistent with your practice, I think a lot that those chronic states are more important than the acute little variables that a lot of us are playing with, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that's where some of these tools can help, especially outside of training. I've heard this a lot also from coaches and they know everything about the training of their athletes, but then they see something in the data that has nothing to do with their training. Yeah. And then it just becomes an excuse to start a conversation and try to figure out other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this this has been great, Marco. I really appreciate the time. Really love digging into all these topics with you. People can find you at your Twitter, right? Like that's the best place to yeah, find yeah. you. Yeah, I think at this point, yeah, that's what I use the most for to communicate anything related to this. So yeah. always feel free to, to write me and I'll try to help. Yeah. Marco also has some very good blogs on Medium, right? It's Medium <laughs> where you can find that. And also check out his app. I've just started using it. I've switched over from Elite HRV. I still use it with some people, Elite HRV. Um, for collection but hrv for training i just started using that with some of my athletes and it's great like the dashboard is is fantastic you can export your data you can there's tons of stuff you can do with it and uh, so i hope people will check that out i'll leave that in the show notes and you guys also have several apps and that kind of you have a suite of apps right like so you have hrv for training you have hrv biofeedback what else? Correct. And yeah. then uh, we have other two tools that are mostly for self-experimentation and research. So things like the pre-post measurements, yeah. those are yeah. camera HRV that uses the camera and HRV logger, which yeah. uses uh, sensors. So those are yeah mostly for experimenting while HRV for training is the main tool for the morning assessments and the biofeedback app if you want to try deep breathing and things like that. Yeah, I've just started playing around with that. And it, it's, well, the HRV logger is what I've been using lately for, for logging uh, workouts and stuff like this. But yeah, so I hope folks will check that stuff out because this stuff is, is quite useful if it's used appropriately. So I'll leave all that stuff in the show notes and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. All right.